today. We have had a really interesting start to this Father's Day Sunday. I don't know if any of y'all are aware, but we had a family of skunks that showed up on the property uh, between by Sunday school was starting just outside of the door going into the kids area. Um, so we had to shoo those away. And uh, just as a word of announcement, the skunks are now hanging out in one of our flower beds. And so don't go out the side door, the ramp up to the gym. Just leave that area be for now. Uh, we'll eradicate those tomorrow. Um, uh, it's gl glad that you're here. We're working through a series uh, in the book of Esther, and we come to week three in that series. Our text comes from Romans chapter, or Romans, <laughs> we were in Romans, from Esther chapter seven today. Um, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. This is kind of the conclusion of some of what happens here uh, from last week. So let's read this together. Romans, <laughs> Esther, chapter, in a long week. Esther chapter 7, I'll read verses 8 through 10. Here we go. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You may be seated. Uh, so what I'd like to do is kind of work our way forward to that segment of the text by backtracking a little bit. We've learned over the last couple of weeks uh, that this is Esther. She's the queen of the Persian Empire. Her husband is Xerxes. This is around the years 480 B.C. when some of this stuff takes place. Um, and so uh, there's a fellow by the name of Haman that has declared war against uh, the Jewish people, dating back from 500 years of revenge that he wants to exact on them. Um, he was uh, from the bloodline of the Ammonites, or Amalekites, and um, so he was, uh, he was in that bloodline. They had, had a long-standing feud between the Jews and the Amalekites, and Haman is finally, 500 years later, going to be able to take his revenge on the Jewish people on behalf of the Amalekites. And so that's what we just read was kind of the conclusion of that story, but I'll work our way forward to it. So let's go all the way back to chapter 2. I know that's a ways back, but chapter 2 and verse 21, because uh, there's a really important detail that comes up in this story. So let's take a look at that, Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. It says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus, or in some of your translations, Xerxes. So these guys had conspired to try and do harm to King Xerxes for whatever their reason was. And then verse 22, but this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, Mordecai being the older cousin of uh, Esther um, who had raised her. And it came to his knowledge it says, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So uh, Mordecai learns about this plot to try and kill the king. Uh, Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king. And then verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So there's a historical book that, ca that uh, captures all of the different events that happened throughout the life of the Persian kingdom. And in the book of the Chronicles, this event was recorded. Again, hang on to that detail. It's going to be important here in just a little bit. Skip forward to Esther chapter 5, again working our way toward what we read. Esther chapter 5 and verse 1 reads, On the third day, that is on the third three days after Esther had found out about this plan that Haman had to try and eliminate, to eradicate all of the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. 
in front of the king's quarters. So Esther's getting ready. She's walking in to do the thing that she had said she was going to do last week, where she said, if I perish, I perish. If I go into the king's presence, I know, unannounced, uninvited, that the penalty of that by law is death. Uh, unless the king extends his golden scepter to me, unless the king shows mercy to me. So she's going forward with her plan to go in and tell the king about this plan to kill all of the Jewish people. It says, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So again, she walks in uninvited, the penalty of which is death. So this is the moment that Esther's, you know, she decides there's no other option that I have to save my Jewish people. So verse 2, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor. And he held out the, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Uh, so Esther was safe. So he, that's the one thing that she could, he could do is he could hold out the golden scepter. She could touch the tip of the golden scepter and she would not be executed on the spot. If he had not done that, that would have been the end of Esther and certainly the end of the Jewish people. Um, I've got a picture for you here. And this is a relief from the city of Persepolis. And Persepolis was one of the Persian uh, cities that uh, Xerxes and his father Darius were working on constructing. They had a palace there. And this relief is a stone carving. The first one you can't see too well. The second picture is a close-up with a little bit more better lighting. And you can see in that second picture with the better lighting, you can see Darius the first, that's the father of Xerxes or Hasherus. So Darius the first is seated on his throne and his son Xerxes is standing behind him. So this is before Xerxes would ascend to the throne. And you can see what is in the Persian king's hand. It's not a sword. That's not a javelin. That is his golden scepter. You know, I love when archaeology verifies the things that we read about in the Bible, because every time those guys dig stuff, more stuff up out of the ground, it just confirms the reliability of the biblical text. I just thought I'd throw that in there for you. Okay. Okay. Verse three, I'm a nerd. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you even up to half of my empire. So the king really thought well of Esther. He loved her very much. He said, I'm even, whatever your request is, even up to half of my empire, I'd be willing to give that to you. Verse 4, And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So she doesn't tell him right there and then what her request is, what she's asking for. She doesn't tell him about this plot to kill the Jewish people of which she has won, she, that Haman has. She doesn't tell him about any of that. She just says, Would you please come to dinner tonight? That's my request at this time. And when we get to dinner, then I'll tell you what it is that I'm asking for. Let me summarize some of what happens next. The king and Haman show up at the banquet for the, that the king has put on, and the queen says to the king, you know what, I'm not going to tell you tonight what it is that I'm asking for. I'm going to ask you to come back for a second meal tomorrow night, and I'll tell you at that second meal what it is that my request is, my big request. And so I'm sure this has got the king's curiosity. You say, well, why didn't she just tell him at the first meal? I don't know. Maybe she likes suspense. I don't, I don't, under, I don't know what her, what her thinking was. But nevertheless, we know in hindsight that she told him at the right time uh, because of how things worked out. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So this guy, Haman, who's the prime minister of Persia, he's just been appointed to that position, a position of great power, a position of great influence, a position of great authority. He, um, he thinks to himself, how wonderful. Nobody else got to go to the meal. Nobody else got invited to the banquet, but I did. And so he's just thinking really well of himself. But then when he walks out of the palace, there's that guy Mordecai again, who won't bow down to him, who won't acknowledge him, who won't, you know, revere him like everybody else is supposed to. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Verse 11, 
And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions with which the king had honored him. So he's just going through this whole catalog of all the wonderful things that have, been, have come my way of recent, um, how, of all the influence, of all the wealth that I have, the power and the position. He's recounting all that, how he had advanced him, uh, how the king had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So this guy, Haman, totally full of himself, right? Isn't that what we see here in this passage? I mean, he's just... He's just just loving, sharing with everybody all of his um, reasons for them to worship him. Verse 12, Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. Again, just more of how great I am. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. So I get to come back for a second meal. Just me, her, and the king. This is amazing. Verse 13, Yet all of this, he says, is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. So he's just latched onto his, his deep hatred and his, his animosity toward Mordecai. He just can't let go of that and move on and enjoy all these wonderful things that he's got. Instead, he's focused on Mordecai. He wants to do away with Mordecai, and he wants to do it in a, war, in a way of grand fashion, right? Verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, hey, we've got an idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high, that is about 75 feet high, a gallows, we're going to hang him, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. So this is late into the evening. He's expecting a 75-foot gallows with scaffolding and everything else that they would have needed uh, to be constructed by the morning so that he could grab Mordecai and hang him 75 feet up into the air um, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. You can go on and enjoy the rest of your day after you know that Mordecai has been done away with in the morning. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Um, so, you know, you said, why 75 feet up in the air? Well, again, this is, a, this is a way of Haman to let everybody know that he's not somebody to be messed with. That if you don't bow down to me, you don't listen to me, you don't jump when I say to jump, this is what's going to happen to you too. And so that's part of the, the, the grandeur of this 75-foot tall uh, gallows. Um, so at this point in the story, it appears that Haman is invincible. It appears at this point in the story that Haman cannot be touched, that he really is a man of great influence and great power, and that there are no Achilles' heel to, to the person of Haman. Uh, but the, problem, the, thing, the difference is we haven't seen the hand of Almighty God enter into the situation yet. So let's look at Esther chapter 6 and verse 1. Here comes God's influence. It says, On that night, strangely, the king could not sleep. Hmm. And so he gave some orders. He said, hey, look, I'm not sleeping really well, so why don't y'all bring in that book, that book of the Chronicles, that book that reports all the different memorable deeds that have been done in my kingdom, and those things were read to the king. So I'd like a little bedtime story read to me. And, it's, and you would never guess which story they read from the book of the Chronicles uh, that night to the king. Yeah, that's right. It was the story about how Mordecai had uncovered this plot to kill the king. He says that in verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to, jet, to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Verse 3, and so the king said, what honor or distinction is the middle of the night? These guys are reading to him. Here's this story. He says, what honor, what distinction has been paid to Mordecai? Have we done anything to celebrate this man who saved my life? Has anything been done for him? And so the, re the attendants respond, nothing's been done for him. No honor's been paid to him. And so the king thinks to himself, verse, uh, middle of verse 4, uh, he says, well, I've got plans to speak to the king about having Mordecai hang. I'm sorry. Haman comes in the next morning. He's thinking to himself, um, this is going to be a great day. I'm going to hang Mordecai. I'm going to get to go meet with the king and, the, and, and with the king and the queen later on tonight. Um, I've got all this power at my disposal. And so he comes in 
thinking that Mordecai is going to be dead in just another hour or so. And he says, he speaks to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So his intent was to come in and tell the king, Mordecai, we're going to hang him today, right? So, uh, um, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now the king's in his mind, he's thinking about this guy, Mordecai, that he had just heard about the night before that had saved his life. But Haman's thinking, he's talking about who? Himself. Right? Who's the man that the little king would like to honor? Well, Mordecai, or Haman thinks to himself, well, obviously he's talking about me. I mean, there's nobody that he loves more than me. And so Haman thinks to himself, whom does the king delight to honor more than me? Um, and so what follows is Haman is giving every, he gives every dopey fantasy that you could possibly think of about how he's going to be celebrated and worshipped and his name's going to be great and everybody's just going to think he's the greatest thing in the world. And he starts dropping all these things on the king. So he says, verse 8, let royal robes be brought. Royal robes, that's for the king to wear. So Haman says, hey, let this person that you want to honor wear your robes. He says, and which the, which the king has worn, and the horse that you have ridden. So the king's horse. Let this person ride on the king's horse, wear the king's robe, and on whose head the crown, royal crown is set. So he wants, to be, he wants to be the king, right? That's kind of what he's saying, verse 9. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. It's a way of uh, showing respect and honor to that person by dressing them. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. So this, this noble person in the kingdom is going to walk through the city, leading this horse with, he thinks, Haman, seated, seated on, this, on the king's horse with the royal robes on. And that person's going to be declaring, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So everywhere they go through the city streets, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So this noble official's got to keep saying that over and over again as he leads this horse. You can just kind of see Haman salivating over this, can't you? I mean, this is just all of my dreams are finally coming true. He's just so excited about it. I, um, now, and then verse 10, and then the king said to Haman, hurry, sounds really good. Take the robes, and the horse, just as you have suggested, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Friends, I got to stop for a second and just say, this is hilarious. I mean, this is great. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. What irony that all the things that Haman had wanted to shower upon himself are being now showered upon his enemy, Mordecai. And not only that, but we learn as we continue in the story that it is Haman who has to lead the horse through town and say, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king wants to honor all day long parading Mordecai through the streets of the city. This is great Bible humor. I mean, this is awesome stuff. All right, but as we get to chapter 7, things are about ready to go from bad to worse for poor old Haman. Let's take a look. Um, Esther has the king and his prime minister for meal number two. Esther turns to the king with her request, middle of verse three. She says, let my life, this is my request, king. I'm finally going to share it with you. Let my life be granted me for me, or granted me for my wish, and for this is my wish, and the same for my people. So let my life be granted for me. Let my life be spared is what she's asking for. Both for me, she says, and for my people. Um, verse four. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And you can imagine uh, the king wants to know who, verse 5, who 
is he? And where is the man who has dared to do this? I mean, who would possibly threaten your life? You're the queen. I mean, let's find this person. Let's root them out. Let's make sure we do justice to this person. And so then Esther looks over at Haman, verse 6, and Esther says, a foe and an enemy, looking at Haman, right? A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman, that is the man. Let's summarize what happens next. Um, the king is incensed. I mean, this is his prime minister. She's pointing to the prime minister, saying that accusing him of wanting to kill her, wanting to murder her, right at the table with the three of them there. The king gets up from the table. He goes out into out to the outside courtyard, just needs to get a little fresh air, needs to cool off, needs to think about things. And so as he's out there, um, Haman rushes to Esther's side to beg for his life. He, rec- he realizes, oh my goodness, Esther was a Jew. I didn't know that. And so we've got this decree coming up here in a couple of days, and all the Jewish people are supposed to be killed, and she would be among those who are to be killed. And so he's begging Esther for his life. And as the king comes back in from the courtyard, Haman has a klutzy moment, and he falls over onto Esther, who's, who's sitting on the couch, middle of verse 8, and he says, I, he was falling over on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? And in my own, this is funny, and in my own house, I mean, poor Haman, everything has completely fallen apart for him. And then I guess one of the servants saw the look on the face of the king, and the servant blurts out, verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, I've got an idea. There are some gallows that Haman has built for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, and it's standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high up into the air. And the king says, hang him on that. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king was abated. Now that is a Hollywood-esque story, right? Pretty remarkable. Good stuff there. Um, Well, that's as far as we want to go with our treatment of the story for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my, my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that is a funny story. There's a lot of irony uh, thick all through that. Pretty remarkable how God worked all of that out. Uh, but, you know, I've got work coming up on Monday. Um, it's Father's Day. What, what difference does all this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, my girls and I, we enjoy watching a show called Andy Griffith. Some of y'all are familiar with Andy Griffith. Um, If you're not familiar with Andy Griffith, you need to tune in. Uh, That's always a great show, a lot of fun, a lot of humor there. Um, It's an old black and white show. And so there are, there's a character in the story by the name of Barney Fife, and Barney is a local deputy, and he's kind of a klutzy guy, and he gets his foot in his mouth a lot. And uh, on one one of the episodes, he gives one of the store clerks a ticket for not taking the trash out or putting trash out in the street. And so this guy's really upset with Barney. He's very, he wants to take it out on Barney, but he re- recognizes that as long as Barney's in his uniform, then he's in official capacity. But when Barney's out of his uniform, when he's dressed in his civilian clothes, then he can punch his lights out. And so the store clerk, Sam, is looking forward to this opportunity when he finally sees Barney in his civvies. And so all episode long, Barney's running around in his uniform because he doesn't want to get called outside of his uniform. He doesn't want to get into a fight. Uh, well, Andy um, secures the help of a local judo expert uh, in the next community over. Uh, Bar- happens to be Barney's judo teacher. And uh, he tells uh, this guy, hey, look, this is Barney's situation. And so the guy dresses up in Barney's um, 
uh, civvies in his suit, and he puts a hat on, and it's late at night, and he's walking around by the courthouse, and Sam knows that, that he thinks that Barney, he doesn't realize it's not Barney, uh, is coming, and so he attacks the judo expert, and the judo expert, he's a short little guy, he takes this big store clerk, and just as Sam comes at, as Sam comes at him, he just starts throwing him over on his back, he comes at him again, he throws him over on his back, he's just flipping him back and forth, and it really hurts Sam a lot. Um, and so then the judo expert slips off into the night. About 30 minutes later, Barney comes by wearing those same clothes, and uh, Sam has completely changed his tune. He says, you know, that judo stuff is pretty serious. You could hurt somebody with that. Um, well, my point in telling you this story is that the, this is the way God works. You know, judo is you take the inertia that somebody's bringing at you, even though you're a smaller person, you take the inertia that they're bringing at you, and you use that to flip them over. You use their inertia against them. And so this is the way God works. He uses this kind of like a spiritual judo on people. He lets them provide all the momentum and all the evil inertia. And then God flip-flops that, their actions, back onto them just like he did with Haman. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 15. He who makes a pit, digging it out, will fall into the hole that he has made. Verse 16. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. Again, Psalm 19 and verse six, or Psalm 9 and verse 16. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. How about Proverbs 5 and verse 22? The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his own sin. And finally, Proverbs 26 and verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Again, the point is that this is the way that God works. It's just part of how he handles situations that come into the lives of his children. Maybe it's a relative or a professor or a coworker that represents that Haman in your life. This might be somebody that you're dealing with right now. or maybe somebody from your past. Maybe it's a neighbor that just won't let things go. Maybe it's an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, an ex-husband or ex-wife, somebody who is out to try and bury you. Maybe it's a supervisor at work, people who for whatever reason just have it out for us, and they'll gossip about us, and they'll cheat, and they'll lie. They'll do whatever they can do to try and damage your reputation, to try and damage you, to try and take you down. And almost every, again, almost every one of us has someone like this or remembers having someone like this in our life. Now, this kind of person, I think, represents a real challenge, because when somebody like this comes into my life, I mean, my, my sinful nature, my fleshly instinct is, I want to bonk them on the head. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one who feels that way, right? Somebody's messing with you like that, and they're being in, in unjust, and then their criticisms, and the kinds of things that they're saying about you, I mean, you just want to, you know, take it to them. And our flesh says, retaliate. Our flesh says, beat them at their own game. Our flesh says, get down in the mud and start throwing it at them. But by doing that, friends, we cheapen ourselves and we hurt our testimony before the Lord. You say, but Gordon, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just allow, allow them to run roughshod over top of me? No, friends, that's not what we're supposed to do. The Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. Romans chapter 12. Let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. It reads like this, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul continues, verse 19, Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And finally, verse 20, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You say, I don't get that. What does that mean? Well, friends, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what that means is that we are not to lower ourselves, we are not to cheapen ourselves or our testimony, our witness, by stooping down to reciprocate what is being done to us. Instead, we turn that person over to the Lord. That's what the Bible is saying. With the confidence that God will do what God said he would do, and he said, I will repay. Nobody's getting away with anything. I'll take care of it. You say, how can we be so sure that this is going to happen? Well, God has promised us this in Psalm chapter 9. We read it a few moments ago, that he would catch these people in their own nets and that he would, they would fall into the very pit that they had dug for you, Psalm chapter 7. And in Proverbs 26, God promised that their mischief would return on their own heads. And this is what Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 7 or chapter 12. Folks, these are solemn promises of Almighty God. You say, Gordon, is God asking me to let these people get away with what they did to me? Is that what God's asking? No. That is not what God is asking us to do. What God is asking us to do is to keep clear of the revenge stuff. To steer clear of slinging mud. What God is asking us to do is to keep our personal testimony intact as we defend ourselves. That we don't stoop to somebody else's level. We don't reciprocate an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let God handle whatever payback is required. Now, it takes longer to do it this way. I may not be in our time frame, because we, we want it done when? Now, right away, right? And, and we want God to take care of those people now. We want him to be immediate with this. But let me remind us that God will do, friends, a much better job at repaying these folks than you or I could possibly do. And that God will do it righteously, and that God will show them mercy if mercy is required, or God will give them difficulty and struggle, or God will end things if that's what is required. So when they are spouting off, you can simply look at them and think about them and go, you know what? You are not my problem. I've given you over to God. I don't need to worry about you. I don't need to fret about you. I don't need to worry about this situation. I've given you over to him, and so I am going on with my life. And friends, when we do that, we have real freedom. Friends, listen. God knows what he's doing. And if we do things God's way when all the dust settles and God has moved like he did on Haman in judgment, you and I will be able to stand there and say, I didn't do a thing. I am completely absolved of this. I, I did, it wasn't, my hand's not on it at all. God handled the whole thing. God did it. He said he wanted it. It was his to repay, and God took care of it. 
Friends, do it God's way, and I promise at the end of the day, you'll be glad that you did. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story today. It reminds us, Lord, of the kind of encounters that we have in the course of life. There are people, Lord, who for whatever reason, just have it out for us. And uh, no matter of convincing or apologizing, it's going to sway them away from how they feel. And Lord, in such situations, may we rise above the mudslinging. May we hand these folks in these situations over to you. You promised, I will repay. That's you saying, I'll take care of it. So Lord, this morning as we celebrate this time of communion, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, if there are some people in our lives that we need to just say to you, Lord, they're all yours. So that we can experience the freedom that you want us to have. Or may we do that. We give you this space. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Encourage us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.